0: Romumu.org. For more information about the other JCAST Network, podcasts and blogs, please visit JCastnetwork.org. Vayachi and Jacob lived. The name of this week's Torah reading Vayachi from the first word Vayachi Yaakov Vayachi Yaakov Shvas and Jacob lived in the land of Egypt for 17 years. The text wants us in this moment as the Torah is about to close a full book of the Torah, the first book, and the most important in many ways. Sefer the, the, HaPikudim, the book of instructions on how to live a good life. So much of what we know of in terms of both what to be and what not to be comes from the Sefer, from the book of Bershith, from the first book from Genesis. And decidedly, Jacob is the most pivotal character without a doubt in Genesis. Can be not, not can't be denied that Jacob and the amount of time devoted to his life more than any of the other of the ancestors is so important in understanding the future of, of the Torah. And in, in many ways, the conversation the Torah wants to have with us about what it is to become a good person. So much of what Jacob was, was th- are things that we want to emulate. And so much of what Jacob was are things that we we recognize as vulnerabilities, and weaknesses, and mistakes. Certainly Jacob has led, in his own words, a very painful life. When asked by Pharaoh how old he was, he told him, this is how old I am, but you should know from such pain. (laughs) Oh yeah, I I suffered so much, he said to Pharaoh. Right, they haven't been that, you know, I I lived a long time, but not nearly as much as my ancestors. And even the few years that I lived were full of so broken and broken. My brother and my father, you don't want to know, Pharaoh. You have a couple of You, know, you can see him saying, so like, listen, you want to hear? I'll tell you. And then I ran away, and then there was a stone, and I saw a ladder. Forget about it. You don't want to know. And then I got... And so here he is, 17 years. He lives in Egypt. Of course, the text is signaling to us the same 17 years that he lived with Jacob, with Joseph before his favorite son was, was taken from him so terribly that number 17 is ma'ad ed. It kind of rings in our ears. 17 years in Egypt, like the 17 years, 17 years, you know, Joseph was 17 years old and he gets to live with him again for 17 years. As if to say to us that he was able to do in those 17 years, maybe, uh, a finishing of the first seventeen years. There's a kind of parallel between the seventeen years he lived with Joseph and the seventeen years that he finished with Joseph. So he lived seventeen years in the land of Egypt, the text tells us. And in verse 29, and now Jacob becomes Israel, becomes the one who wrestles with God. The days of his wrestling now are numbered. <clears throat> He's going to retire. And he calls to his son, as we said this morning, not just to his son or any son, he has many sons, but to the one, his son Joseph. And he says to him, If I have found favor in your eyes. This You can't help but hear this as an, an entreaty, almost as if he's, he's throwing himself at the feet of Joseph. Whenever the term in the Bible appears, if I have found favor in your eyes, it's always of a, one who has less power than the one who is being entreated. If I have found favor in your eyes, we see in the book of Esther, um, where Esther comes to Achashverosh, the king, if I have found favor in your eyes, meaning, if I haven't found favor in your eyes, then I know that you're not going to do it. So, the asymmetry of the power here is profound, because of course Joseph, one, he, he once, had a dream that his father would come and bow before him. And in fact, his father's about to. Can anyone say Oedipus? Oh, see, so here we are. Simna, he, the second time he uses the word na, please. Simna yadcha. Tachet For those who are shocked by the graphic nature of this request, he's asking him to swear on his thigh, which, of course, is a euphemism for his genitals. But it's also, in a very profound way, the future. He's giving Joseph his future and saying, this is my future, it's in your hands, literally. And I'm vulnerable. I'm opening myself to you. And so, do with me, chesed ve'emet, ve'asita imadi chesed ve'emet. I'll not take tib- 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 b- Please do not bury me in Egypt. V'shachavti avotai. I want to Lay down, I want to be laid to rest with my ancestors. <speaking in Hebrew> Lift me up, carry me out of Egypt. <speaking in Hebrew> I want to be buried in the ancestral burial place. And Joseph says to him, <speaking in Hebrew> I will do as you have asked me. Literally, I will do according to your words. Yomer, and now, in a moment that we discussed together in the open book this morning, Joseph has now promised he would do according to what his father has asked of him, but his father says, that's not enough. He shavali, swear it to me, take an oath. And he swears to him, he takes a shavua, an oath. Yisrael, and now Israel, the one, who wrestled but never bowed, now bows before his son, Joseph, who has his whole world in his hand. And in this moment, this profound moment, I think for Joseph, we're not gonna go here completely, but can you imagine that the fulfillment of your dream that your father would bow before you comes when your father is about to leave the scene? Your father's frailty, your your parents' fragility Your parents' vulnerability is expressed not, right, in recognizing that I am the viceroy of Egypt, but because I'm the viceroy of Egypt and you have the power to help me, I bow before you. How powerful it is to know, we could go in a lot of different places here, the moment of suspicion, potentially, that Joseph um, might not actually fulfill his words without some formal vow, Right, go run and get a notary. Right, he says to him, "I, I, you know, your word's not enough." Or, you know, a prenup. I'm going to say the words to you, but now I have to sign a piece of paper too. Or, in the language of the rabbis, we see here Joseph's own powerlessness vis-à-vis Pharaoh, who's more powerful than Joseph. At later on in the text, when Joseph goes to request from Pharaoh that he allow him to go bury his father, right? he has to actually say that I made an oath. And that oath becomes what Pharaoh says, oh, if you made an oath, and they repeat the word over and over again, if you made an oath, oh, that we have to honor. So in that reading, the rabbis have basically taken the suspicion and the sense of dissonance between the father and the son off the page, and they said, really, Jacob knows better. He says, your word won't be enough, Joseph. There'll come a moment where you'll stand before Pharaoh and you'll ask him to do this deed, and Pharaoh will say, well, show me the contract. Show me the oath. And somehow the oath becomes significant. But what I want to focus on here is actually how this moment in its totality, this moment of being buried not in Egypt, impacts Joseph. If you look towards the end of the Torah reading, which we won't get to today, the exact same scene will play out in a very different way. In in, in a slightly different way, but that's important. Turn to page... 300 and nope, 310 the text now will actually bring us back to Jacob because how did the text begin in this week's Parsha what is the name of our Parsha vayichi and he lived and now the text on the top of page 310 on the right side, the very first word on the page is, Vayechi Yosef. Vayechi Yaakov. Vayichi Yosef. Will Joseph be like his father? Vayar Yosef, the, Ephraim, right, the text will tell us poignantly that Joseph will live long enough to see grandchildren, a third generation, great-grandchildren, yo Yosef, in verse 24, And Joseph said to his brothers, just as his father had said to him, I am going to die. And God will surely take notice and remember you all. And will take you out of this land. And will take you out of this land. God will take you out of bondage and out of slavery to bring you to the land that was sworn to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now Joseph makes his brothers take an oath. God will remember you all. And when he does, when you are remembered... You must lift me, and bring my bones with you. When Ya'amat Yosef and Joseph dies, Ben Ne'ev Esther Shanim, Yachantu Oto, and he was embalmed, Va'giysem ba'Aron Mitzrayim, and Joseph was placed in an ark, a coffin, in the land of Egypt. Jacob taught his son something very profound. This moment is so fraught because whether or not Joseph will be a part of the family is profoundly important. The book of Genesis can't, cannot end with one of the brothers on the outside. And so the book of Genesis will end with a question. The question will be, as the question of the entirety of the book of Genesis is, will the brothers, will the family be reconstituted? Or will one, one person remain outside of the family? Is that what it takes in order for us to become a community, a family, a nation? And what's remarkable here is, of course, that this last test is held above the heads of the readers. We won't know until the children of Israel in their totality leave the scene. Will they remember to take the bones of Joseph, the remnants of and reminders of alienation and triumphalism? of a family that is constituted based upon one scapegoated human being. But most importantly for me this morning, and for many of us here this morning, is the sense that not only is that question held out, but the behavior of Jacob becomes reflected in the behavior of his alienated and ostracized son. Joseph, who has a Egyptian name and lives the life of an Egyptian. In fact, he's even embalmed, which is a very Egyptian practice. The question for Jacob, as he makes Joseph swear, is whether or not Joseph himself will also want to leave Egypt. The question for Jacob is, is my responsibility is not only will you take care of me and bring me back to the land of my birthplace. That's Jacob's deep desire. But maybe Jacob's bigger desire is that his kids, especially Joseph, the one he's most worried about, the one whom he most connected to, will Joseph be left behind? And how will Joseph remember to be a little bit like Jacob? And in this, Jacob models something that is profoundly true that all of us know is that unless we ourselves model, a dukmah ishi, the personal example of the kind of behavior and the kind of practices that we want others and the next generation to, Im- to embody, it won't happen by words alone. Jacob forced Joseph to leave the land for the first time since his trauma. He forced Joseph to leave the place that he had become powerful and safe, to go to the place where he had been unsafe and powerless. In a kind of exposure therapy, Jacob forced Joseph's hand to go back and reintegrate to that place. And in modeling that, he also invited Joseph to lead a life the way that Jacob had led his life. It's remarkable when we think about it how often we expect people to do as we say but not as we do. I'll never forget actually two weeks ago, leaving the sanctuary and I was on my way back on my scooter and somebody who's here, but I won't name who it is, saw me on the scooter and I was with my son and and she said, where's your helmet? And I said, I forgot it. And she screamed at me as I was like scooting. She said, dogma eshit, personal example. You have to be a person, they'll learn from what you do. How would Joseph have known, A, that he could have returned to the land, and B, that he had to, had Jacob not invited this scene. Had Jacob not actually deployed his son and said, your job is to take me out. And then Joseph said, okay, I guess that's the right way to be. And then by the end of his life, Joseph says, okay, now I'll deploy all of you. It's impossible for us to build communities of responsibility and accountability without ourselves modeling the very thing that we hope to see in the world. It just doesn't work. Children don't learn by what we say. Children learn by what we do. When I was a young man, I saw pretty clearly that when I saw that when we went into certain neighborhoods, I took off my yarmulke. There were certain places that I just saw others taking off their kippah. So that's what I did. I saw all manner of compromise. People would tell me in my yeshiva that, you know, X, Y, and Z, and then they wouldn't do it. And I remember thinking to myself, when I was a young man who hated hypocrisy, that the worst thing you can be is a hypocrite. If you make a claim to be something and then you don't actually live it. I became a little bit more mature, a little bit more compassionate, a little more loving. There are a lot of reasons why people don't live up to the things that they aspire to live up to, it's true. Not everyone who says something is necessarily a hypocrite. Sometimes we just, you know, we have an aspiration. We put it out into the world. We hope that we will be that way. That's certainly the case. And there are so many reasons why it's hard sometimes to be a personal example. And sometimes we are trying to be and we don't get there. But what a remarkable story here for Jacob to give his son this lesson. To take him by the hand and to say to him, here, let me show you how to do it. I think that for me personally at this moment, um, and I think communally, there are many areas where we might apply this. I don't know if anybody here has any application, any places in their life that come to mind where you say to yourself, you know what, I think that sometimes I want people to hear what I'm saying and to live it, but I myself am not actually living it could be in any area of your life. And sometimes the truth is that you need someone like Jacob to say to Joseph, "If I don't actually deploy you to go back there, you won't do it on your own." And I could have just said, "Watch me,, like, watch me tell the other brothers." I don't think Joseph would have learned. Joseph himself had to go back there and he had to actually have something liberated for him until he could then say, "Oh, this is important. it is a value. I think about that often in terms of Jewish identity, as well as I just gave you a couple of examples. It's so important at this moment in our life. Let me say this, and then we can go somewhere else, on, you know, whatever you want to go. We had over, almost 100,000 Jews, I think, march last Sunday. 100,000 people, Jews, allies, all kinds of people. Something like that. Was that the numbers, Did people hear those numbers? It's a huge number of people, right? 50,000, was it more 30,000? 25,000 Jews. I love I got just bargained down. <laughs> do I hear 15? 15. Okay, so four Jews got together and they walked across the Brooklyn Bridge. But it was a big deal because getting four Jews to do anything together was great. It was from different places. It was awesome. You know, I... I I think for for those of us in the pulpit in the liberal Jewish world who have been trying our best for years to create vibrant, dynamic, thick Jewish communities, who've tried our best in every way, shape or form to create a product that people would want to come and be a part of for the last 80 years, from beautiful music to powerful Torah. especially for those in the liberal Jewish community who said that we don't want to place an emphasis on survival. We want to talk about the beauty of Yiddishkeit. We want to pull people into synagogues. We want to pull people into Jewish life. right? I don't think there's a more exciting place to be on Shabbat morning, Jewishly, than in places like BJ and Rommel, and Ikar, and Kavanah, and all these amazing, even down the block, are amazing places. And yet, what is remarkable to me since Pittsburgh is to see how many people come out for survival, and how hard it is to get people to come out for thrival. If that many people showed up at synagogues around this country every single week, we wouldn't have experts talking about the future of Jewish life in North America. We wouldn't have pundits in Israel talking about how the diaspora is dying. They take the die out of diaspora. It would just be like the aspora. It would be Diana. We had enough. What's remarkable is is I have I keep a folder on my computer of all the people over the last 10 years that have sent me emails after services telling me that this is the best thing that they've ever experienced in their life, and how continually, when it comes to making choices that model to our children and the next generation why Judaism is valuable or why this tradition or any tradition is valuable, it's so hard. It's remarkable. But if you tell people that they're beating up Jews somewhere in the world, they're going to show up, which is itself an amazing thing. I'm not... It was so inspiring what happened. So I read the story. I see Jacob going to Joseph. Joseph, you're the assimilated Jew, as I spoke about last week. It's super important to me, Joseph, that you are buried in the land. So I want you to see my model. I'm going to go, and I'm going to ask you to go. So I was thinking this morning about all of you here who are so amazingly ambassadors for the Judaism and the the vitality of this tradition. And I think it's super important to lift all of you up and those who are continuing to model what it is to show up and to to live a committed Jewish and spiritual life. That others might see that as an example and also commit themselves to be a part of a thriving community, be a part of, of of an evolution and a revolution for the sake of, of a continued tradition. That's where my mind went this morning. It could have just be me. If you or anyone here that you know in your life could use this message and you feel called to stand with Jacob and Joseph as they receive this modeling and this imperative, this deployment for the sake of the future, if that speaks to you this morning, even if it's the same four Jews that walked across the Brooklyn Bridge, I invite you to stand here at Torah this morning as we read these psukim.